remain standing for the reading of Scripture. This is from Zechariah 13, verses 1 through 2. We're in the last two chapters of the book of Zechariah, if you've been following along this summer. And last week we talked about the pierced shepherd of the flock and the realities of sufferings in our own lives. And this morning we're going to look at one other important theme towards the end of the book of Zechariah. It's really important for understanding this book. And as we've been saying all summer, Zechariah is a wild ride. Uh, It has different genres of literature. It can be confusing in places. But the governing theme, and I want you to hear this as you hear the scripture, the governing theme in the book of Zechariah is God is giving his people a vision of the future that is meant to encourage and convict them in how they're living in the present. So our text from today, Zechariah 13, 1 through 2, does just that and brings up a very important theme. Hear God's word. On that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the unclean spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. In the beginning, when there was only silence and void, God creates. Like Bach, Mozart, or Beethoven, he weaves threads of life, gravity, and the suspense of spring and autumn with profound pleasure and promise. Explosions of life spring up into the vacuum of space. Twisted rock and gas, galaxies of dust and debris form a cosmos stretching so far that it bends the tracks of time itself. And there, amidst everything, a marble of green and blue is suspended. Sea and land separate with the clap of God's hands, earth And sky pull apart by his joy-filled laughter. Life pops up in all kinds of species and places. But it isn't enough. God has something else on his mind. A deeper, more fulfilling relationship that can't yet be found in any other thing that he's made. His love wants to be shared. He wants to create something that can return to him the vivacious joy that he feels and can commune free of all the kinds of instincts or laws that the rest of creation is bound by. So God kneels down on the musty soil of planet Earth and begins to gather it into clumps. Tears of joy and love roll from his eyes, softening the dirt, giving him workable substance to bring into form a wonder unseen in the cosmos until then. Hands, feet, a head to carry the mind, a heart to inhabit the chest, legs 
fingers, eyebrows, and organs, God makes his human. Next, so he can guarantee the image of this new creature will reflect his own, he does something exceptional. He leans over and kneels beside the form, laying out his legs and knees over ours. His chest against our chest. His arms stretched out across our arms until his face is finally pressed up against ours. And then, from his abundant longing, he takes deep, excited breaths and he breathes out his life force. Our lungs expand. We take our very first breath. Out of complete darkness, we awaken to life as a cosmic infant, not even knowing yet how to open our eyes, and slowly we draw up the muscles above our eyebrows, prying open our eyelids. In this sacred moment, the first impression of what life and the world will be The very first thing that we see is not the soil, it's not vast emptiness, it's not even a garden, it's the face of God. Eye to eye, mouth to mouth, chest to chest. This very first vision that we're shown of us and God in the very first pages of Genesis is of profound intimacy of a continuous consciousness with God. What Strong Coleman is doing in that beautiful piece in his book, Beholding, is something quite profound. He's talking about how in the Genesis account, humanity didn't just wake up into existence and wonder how it is that we needed to do things or how it is that we needed to be. Humanity wakes up in direct contact with our maker, in his very presence. The beginning of humanity was defined by its sharing, its partaking in the very life and breath of God. This is what human life is meant to be. Let me ask you the question this morning and be honest. Does your daily life feel like that? That you are living eye to eye, mouth to mouth, chest to chest with the living God. Because mine doesn't. I feel like my attention is constantly divided. There are many days in my life in which I feel like the God who loves me and made me and created me and the entire world and everything that is good and beautiful in the world, the one who is alone deserving of worship and attention and the only source of life and peace and meaning and significance that will last past death, and live into forever, I often feel as if he is getting my leftovers. And if you feel like me in this regard, I want you to know that it's not totally your fault or my fault. We can own the fact that we live in a world and in a culture that does nearly everything it possibly can to discourage you from being in the presence of God and enjoying the presence of God. The modern, secular, Western world does not value that kind of intimacy with God. Pastor John Tyson goes so far as to say that our secular culture seeks to perform what he calls a reverse exorcism. 
that our culture wants to expel the presence of God from our lives and fill that space instead with some sort of generic form of rational science and reason instead. Maybe John gives secularism a little bit too much credit when he says this, but it's hard to say that he is certainly wrong in the way that he is thinking. I mean, think about it. Faith in God, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, is really one of the few taboos that we have left in our culture, isn't it? It's a no-go in our schools. It's a no-go in the public square, on message boards, in village council meetings. It's not welcomed or encouraged in a lot of places. And furthermore, the secular values of technology and tolerance and rational thought and compliance pull us further away from the presence of God and cause us to focus more on our self-curated identities. I do not say this to make you suspicious or fearful about the culture around us. Far from it. God loves that culture. But I think it's okay to recognize that we live in this tension in the Midwest of America, in the Chicago suburbs in 2023. On the one hand, we are people who are created to live closely with God all the time, breathing his very life into us. And then on the other hand, we live in this environment that is trying to suck God out of us. Is there hope in the tension that we feel today? Well, in our passage, in Zechariah 13, this morning, I do find hope. God tells Zechariah the prophet to tell the people that on his day, which is coming, there will be a fountain of healing and purifying for the people fountain and it's going to cleanse them from every sin and every blemish another way to say this is that God is telling the people that he's going to bring them back into an eye-to-eye mouth-to-mouth chest-to-chest relationship with them where they are drinking deeply from the life-giving waters of the fountain that only he can provide and how is God going to accomplish this for the people he says he's going to eliminate those things that pull us away from his presence. In verse 2, he says, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will also remove from the land the prophets and the unclean spirit. So God's solution in this vision of a heavenly new Jerusalem is that he's going to rid it completely of idols, bad prophets and unclean spirits. That's his plan. When he speaks of prophets here, by the way, he's not referencing good, faithful, godly prophets like Zechariah. He's talking about prophets that are in the pagan temples who are spewing and perpetuating evil. So it's idols and unclean spirits that are causing the impurity and the sin among the people. It's idols and unclean spirits that are ripping people away from the presence of God. And God says, I'm going to cut them off from the land and they will be forgotten. Friends, This is the vision of what is to come for us. But remember, what's the whole point of the book of Zechariah? It's to create a future vision that does what? It motivates us in how we're living here and now. So if God intends in the new heaven and the new earth to cut off idols and unclean spirits from our lives and restore us to his presence alone, then guess what? We're implored to do our part here and now to resist and cut off the idols in our lives and seek God's life-giving presence instead. 
If you've been around the church for a while, which I know many of you have, the odds are as you've sat through a sermon or two about idolatry. I've done several here at this church. And the pastor probably identified idolatry as something like anything that takes the place of God in your heart. Right? Or perhaps you've heard it said that an idol is, 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 can be a good thing that actually becomes the ultimate thing. It becomes the thing rather than just a thing in your life. And, and often conversations about idolatry in this way become a conversation mostly about priorities. And if that's the case, then the task is really to, to keep watch over the idols of our hearts and to seek to give God priority over other things which are maybe bad, sometimes good, but mostly neutral. And, and making sure that those things don't become the thing in our lives. Uh, I'm all about talking about priorities. I'm all about talking about uh, watching out for, for the state of our hearts. But let me tell you, this is not what the biblical writers meant when they talked about idolatry. They were not talking about priorities. To understand idolatry, we actually have to go back to Exodus chapter 20, one of the most important chapters in the Bible, because it's the Ten Commandments. And we have to go back to those first two clauses. The first commandment is when God says, you shall have no other gods but me. Notice that is lowercase g, gods. And then the second commandment, is that you shall make for yourself you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them and worship them those are idols now i don't know about you but growing up in the church and learning the 10 commandments i feel like those two commandments were basically taught the same way for me like they were kind of collapsed together and 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 brought basically into one that they're both basically about idols right it's kind of a matter of priorities. Where is God in your heart over these things? But that's actually not the case. These are really two different things. That's why there's two different commandments. Let me do some definition for you. Uh, gods and idols are different things. The lowercase g God is an invisible but very real spiritual creature. Invisible, you can't see, but a very real spiritual creature. And an idol, in contrast, is a dead statue. It's a carving that's made out of wood or stone or metal, and it's inanimate. It doesn't move. It is hand-carved by a human who wants to make money and sells it in the marketplace. It is a physical representation of something else. By itself, the idol by itself has no power. It's a hunk of material. That's all it is. But the lowercase g god that can often lurk behind or be represented by an idol imbues it with a spiritual power that can be extremely dangerous or destructive in our lives. So here clearly, an idol is not a potentially good thing in our lives that's just misprioritized to become the ultimate thing. It's a statue that represents some kind of real spiritual being that can do us real harm. It's a conduit so that the worshiper can meet his or her lowercase g God in some way. I understand if your mind is spinning a little bit uh, in the midst of those definitions. Maybe you feel a little anxiety, anxiety bubbling up in you and going, I've never really understood this. I don't want you to be fearful of the idea of idols. Of course, many of the idols in our world are just hunks of material. They have no real power at all. I've been to India. I've been to China. I eat at Thai restaurants. Uh, these places are all filled with idols of various kinds. In India and China, there are shrines all over the place, on the streets, corners, in people's homes. Many of those, I'm convinced, are just impotent idols. They're nothing. They're nothing. It's just material. 
but some idols you feel. It's hard to explain, but it's impossible to deny that there's power behind them. Some are portals into a relationship with a very real spiritual being where something spiritual happens, and not in a good way. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I do not mean then that food sacrificed to idol is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, an idol is nothing. But the sacrifices to pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Notice that Paul, for him, the danger of idolatry is not that you've messed up your priorities. It's not some good thing that becomes the thing. It's that you end up in a relationship with a spiritual being that's not God. That's not Yahweh. So, idolatry in the biblical sense is not something that steals our attention away from God. And I think that's good news because I'm highly distractible. I don't know about you. I can't stay in a continual state of being eye-to-eye, mouth-to-mouth, chest-to-chest with the living God. I can't do it. And I don't even think that's actually the biblical standard of how we're supposed to do our lives. Um, Think of it this way. I love my wife, right? Katie is the most important person in the world to me. But I cannot spend all day gazing into her eyes and her gazing into my eyes, as nice as that would be, Because if we did, we'd be pretty negligent parents, wouldn't we? We wouldn't work. We wouldn't get anything done. The house would be a total mess. I cannot think about my wife, Katie, every second of the day. I can't do that. But my heart is always to be with her, isn't it? And no one else in my life gets that level of intimacy. Nobody else in my life. I never get to gaze into another woman's eyes like that. It wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be wise. That would be the path towards adultery. So in the same way, idolatry is spiritual adultery. In N.T. Wright's book, Evil and the Justice of God, which I can't recommend highly enough, he puts it this way. When we humans commit idolatry, Worshipping that which is not God as if it were, we thereby give the other creature and beings in the cosmos a power, a prestige, and authority over us which we, under God, were supposed to have over them. When you worship an idol, whatever it is, you abdicate something of your own proper human authority over the world and give it instead to that thing whatever it is. Now, there's a definition of idolatry that I'm pretty convinced the biblical authors would get behind. Worshiping that which is not God as if it were. Or as David Paulison asks, has something or someone beside Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? And I really appreciate that N.T. Wright ties idolatry to the idea of worship because that is really the heart of it. We are meant to worship God in a familial, intimate way. That's what we are created for as humans. We are hardwired for worship. And make no mistake, everybody worships. Every person that you ever meet worships. Christians worship and Jews worship 
and Muslims worship, and Hindus, and Wiccans, and Neo-Pagans, and Mormons, and Yogis, and, and, and ideologues. Everybody worships. Even anti-God, secular, intellectual atheists worship. In a now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, the, the novelist, social critic, and, and ambiguously spiritual intellectual David Foster Wallace wrote eloquent, uh, spoke eloquently saying, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there actually is no such thing as atheism because no there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So hear it again, friends. There's one true creator God who made the world and everything in it that is good and beautiful and true. And he knows you and he loves you and he desires relationship with you in such a way that you might receive his very breath as your own for life. So the call is to worship him alone, not anything else. Now, some of you might be breathing a sigh of relief because you're saying, cool, I don't have stone idols in my house. I'm not even drawn towards that. I don't have an Asherah pole. I don't burn incense on strange altars. I don't sacrifice animals. I don't communicate with the dead. I'm good. I'm good. I don't worship idols. But here's what I want to challenge each and every one of us with. We are not off the hook if that's true about us because in our secular society uh, that is trying to exercise God from our lives, we are encouraged to worship things that seem neutral. Money, sex, power, more followers on social media, flatter abs, social status, higher cheekbones. We know that these things are not God. We know in our hearts those things aren't God, but we so easily worship them as if they were. We give to them our very best, our desires, our intentions. We look at them as things that are going to provide true life for us. Foster Wallace says that if we worship the wrong thing, it will, quote, eat us alive, end quote. If you worship beauty, you will feel uglier. If you worship wealth and stuff, you will feel more poor and discontented. If you worship success and power, you will feel inadequate and powerless. If you worship a high or a rush, you will feel unsatisfied. If you worship sex, you will feel lonely and unloved. If you give your best attention to the algorithm of YouTube Reels, you will feel dumber, and I'm convinced you are actually getting dumber as you do that. No, we do not tend to struggle with physical idols on our mantelpieces, but we can, I think we can all agree this morning that we struggle with lesser gods that lurk behind the idols of our day. We give them power. We worship them in ways that should be reserved for God alone. It's not just that our priorities are out of whack, though that can certainly be the case. It's that we fail to see the power of these idols and the gods that can often lurk behind them and what they're doing to our lives. So back to Zechariah. Three, three takeaways this morning as I close regarding idolatry, and I'll encourage you towards these um, as we seek to follow Jesus. The first is this. God's vision for the future is one that doesn't tolerate idols or unclean spirits. Uh, the words of Zechariah are really clear. Idols and unclean spirits are doing considerable damage to your life 
and God's not going to tolerate them in his vision of the future. And I think this is why Jesus shows emotion when he's driving out the money changers and, and, and those who are selling animals in the temple for sacrifice. I think it's why Paul in 1 Corinthians says, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I think it's why John says in his first letter, dear children, keep yourself from idols. If God does not tolerate idols, then we should not tolerate them either. Zechariah sharing this word with his people was a way of, of, of encouraging them to recognize the powerful idols of their day and refuse to tolerate them as well. That's our calling. That's our calling. Second, we are to cut off the names of these idols. That's verse 2. God says, I will cut off the names of the idols. They will be remembered no more in the land. That's an interesting phrase, cut off the name. Um, when this phrase is used in scripture, it means that you are ridding something of its posterity. Essentially, you are eliminating the last living heir of that thing. Therefore, that name cannot get passed on anymore. It dies off with that bloodline, if you will. So God promises that at the end of time, he's going to do this work. He's going to cut them off completely. But dear friends, we are called to do our part here and now. How can we participate in the cutting off of the names of idols? Well, we can name them. We can expose the lesser gods that lurk behind them. When we feel something grab hold of us, when we realize that we are entering a worshiping position and posture towards something or someone other than the one true living God, we can name it and we can bring that lesser God into the light and renounce that power. If the algorithm has you, log off. If the online shopping cart has you, delete it. If your jealousy over your neighbor's new car has you, Practice gratitude for what you have. If the, pursuit, if the pursuit of beauty has you, go back to God and let him tell you how beautiful you are. If your political party has you, then remind yourself that we do not worship a donkey or an elephant. We worship a lamb. Cut off the names of these idols. Let their power stop with you. Let them fall into nothingness. Let them be remembered no more. And then third, last. Spend more time intentionally worshiping God. Build in healthy rhythms of, of getting back to God, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, chest to chest. Get up earlier in the morning and let him be the first thought on your mind before your feet hit the ground. Take a break in your day to be with him. Let him breathe life into you. Let him tell you who you are. Let your heart worship him freely. Commit yourself or commit yourself again to love him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength with every scrap of your being. Worship God, not Baal or Aphrodite or Messi or Taylor Swift or the new Tesla or washboard abs, not the 6.0 GPA on a 4.0 scale or whatever they're doing to measure success in the schools these days. Not the wrinkle-free skin or the volume of your financial portfolio. Not the desire for sex or the power to demand it. Whatever it is for you, don't worship that thing as if it was God. It's not. It's not. It'll eat you alive. Only God is God. And he's the only one that's worthy of your heart and attention 
and intention and desire. These are the words that God has for us this morning to continue to live with. And I'd like to close this morning with a prayer. It's not going to be on the screen. It's just a a prayer that I've kind of put together as I was working through this theme in this text this week. And what I'm going to encourage you towards is if these sort of takeaways resonate with you today, if this is something that you really desire, this is something that you want in your life to, to, to cut the names off of those idols and to worship God alone, to just say this prayer with me. I'll do it line by line. You can just repeat after me. I'd invite you to say it out loud. I think there's power in saying it out loud. If you're not comfortable doing that and you want to say it in the stillness of your own heart, uh, you're welcome to do that as well. Would you pray with me? Father God, you created every good thing. And still you chose to redeem me and to make me your treasure. And yet my sinful heart draws me away from you to other things. I recognize my favorite idols, Lord. Forgive me for setting my affections on aspects of your creation. Instead of you as creator. My sin blinds me to spiritual realities. And it makes me a fool. Lord, rip off the blinders. Untangle the webs of sin that have drawn my heart from you. Forgive me for my spiritual adultery. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Loving Lord, give me a pure and undivided heart for you. Keep me from trying to quench my thirst with filthy water from broken cisterns. Rather, draw my heart to the fountain who is Jesus. The all-satisfying wellspring of living water. Make serving idols so unsatisfying to my soul that I would quickly cut off their names forever. Let them be forgotten. Lord, release me from their power over me. Remind me that I was created to worship you alone. Draw me close to you all day, every day. Let me see your eyes looking at me. O creator who knows me and loves me.